0: and welcome to the latest Scottsway hey podcast. And this podcast is all about new dance theatre. Later, I'll be talking to Louise All about her new experimental solo opera work, Skunk Without K is Sun, which is on at the Take Me Somewhere Festival. But first, I'll be talking to choreographer Elizabeth Schilling about her groundbreaking dance concert performance, here, Eyes Move, Dances with Leggetti. I hope you enjoy. And I'm joined now by dance choreographer Elizabeth Schilling to hear about Hear Eyes Move, Dances with Leggetti. Hello, Elizabeth.
1: Hi, Alistair. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So how would you describe to our listeners Hear Eyes Move, Dances with Laghetti?
1: So Here as Move is a dance concert or a concert dance where we choreographically interpret all the 18 etudes for piano uh, written by Hungarian composer Josh Ligeti. Um, yeah, and Josh Ligeti is a Hungarian composer and a lot of choreographers have actually used his music um, or parts of the etudes, but no one has ever done all the 18. So I'm quite proud of that and also excited to share with our audiences.
0: And is there something about his music that really lends itself to being interpreted in dance?
1: Well, I personally think so. I feel like... For example, when I listened to Ligeti for the very first time, it was in 2011, it was his first string quartet. Um, I was really struck by the rhythmicality that Ligeti uses because he comes straight from this tradition of Stravinsky, Bartók. So he uses uh, very polyrhythmic structures, which I feel very attractive to work with dance um but i also um felt there were a lot of textures that he was using in in his music um so i personally feel like his music is gives a rich buffet for dance but um it certainly also has its challenges because it's um some of the most difficult music that exists out there in the world so i feel it's not the easiest to dance to although i would say and i think some musicologists agree with me that his music is movement
0: and could you tell us a bit about who Georges Leggetti
1: was and his legacy that he's left? Yeah, so it's a bit difficult to to be short about this who he was. <laughs> That's because... okay we've got all the time. <laughs> so um, I would say, in my own words, I would say to me he was really a genius in his field. Um, he was born nineteen twenty three um and uh, was supposed to study or he was really interested in physics and he was he was supposed to study physics however he was also jewish so unfortunately he was not allowed to the university um so that's why he went then into composition um so he studied under bartok and um yeah yeah, so the early compositions you really feel this hungarian influence um and then uh, after the second world war where he lost i think his mother and his brother um, he then, well, he lived a little bit in the communist times, and then he fled to Vienna and later on to Cologne. And I think that was a very um, this these kind of political systems that he lived in, as well as the immigration, um, seem to have been very striking to his, uh, not only to his biography but also his music making, because. Um, throughout his lifetime he um, resisted any form of idealisms in political system any forms of extremes which we can also find in the way he wrote music but also because i think he's some like he's very special in the way that he really has this um, craftsmanship from the classical tradition, from, from this Eastern European tradition as well. And he then, in Cologne, he met um, composers like Stockhausen. He met the early developments of electronic music, And uh, whilst he experimented with those ideas, he never really um, stuck to them, but they influenced his music. So, for example, he did uh, music musical compositions in the 60s and 70s, where he would take on ideas from electronic music making, but transform them onto orchestras um, so basically to me he was a composer who had a variety of influences and if you would like to I can speak more about this and how they influence our dance and I feel like this what this is what makes him so incredibly rich and I'm just personally so struck on how his mind works if you really go into the depth of his his compositions his compositional concepts of how he's able to connect the seemingly most widespread um, associations uh, into super complex musical structures. I will stop here. (laughs)
0: That's (laughs) fascinating because he's not someone I know at all, Um, but from what you're saying it's almost like straddling 20th century classical music from a a kind of older tradition to something which is quite modern.
1: Absolutely, completely. I mean, Yes, and the fascinating thing is that it's not he was not only inspired by music, he was inspired. For example, he was so curious, and I find this so ins- inspirational as an artist as well. For example, um, he, in the in the seventies, I think early nineteen seventies, um, there was a philosopher who's I believe Austrian English, maybe even um, called Karl Popper and um he wrote an essay on clocks and clouds so for example how i, I will say it in my own words briefly if people would like to um, hear more about it, they can google it um so how like cloud systems are supposedly predictable and you can calculate them, so like machine-like, right. and how clouds and the ex- other extremes are, you can't calculate them, they're unpredictable. So they are more like phenomena of chaos theory. And so, for example, he took those ideas and um, used them in his music making or um, he was also super inspired by Alice in Wonderland or um, drawings by Maurits Escher, you know, which is super, seemingly super chaotic, but they do have a structure. Um, So he put all of those ideas together and um, like the more you dig into his compositional works and you really study them, the more you see, um, yeah, where he took his inspiration from and how he transformed it. And I find that quite um, completely striking.
0: So he always kept that kind of scientific mind, he wanted to study music, but that requiring scientific mind was always there.
1: Yeah, I believe so, and I mean, I believe uh, music making is a very, um, I I feel like it's much more, depends on which music you make, but um, it's quite a mathematical process, Um, so it's much more mathematical than some of the dancing we do, I would suppose, Um, so he definitely had that mind. and. He just had this mind also for, he was just curious, but he had this mind for complexity. And it was there, for example, like I really studied also his early works. He had different phases of his life. For example, his early works, as I said, was definitely influenced by Bartok or this tradition. And then he had those influences from uh, Cologne and Germany electronic music. Um, But then throughout his lifetime, basically the influence became much more complex. Um, There was a life... T- like there was a phase in his creative um, life where he would um, completely compose, I would say, like cloud uh, cloud compositions where there was in the orchestra there was no hierarchy, so to say, and you would just hear like uh, states. I was w- like cloudy states, I would say. But then with the etudes, um, actually the etudes were written in the the first book of the etudes was written 1985, and um, they were written after a long creative break. And um, you can feel that because it's like the start of a new, um, yeah, creative phase, I would say, because I feel like really with the etudes, he brought so many things together that he was working on throughout his whole lifetime. And I feel also that's what make the uh, piano etudes um, so very special because they are so rich.
0: <laughs> so even though he was doing different styles and different influences, you can still know it's Ligeti, there's a line yeah. that runs through everything, yes?
1: Oh, completely. I would say absolutely. <laughs> you cannot, yeah, you so, cannot not hear that.
0: How does his music translate into dance for you and into uh, a yeah. show?
1: So um, when I create or especially with Ligeti, because I have so much respect for his music because just because it's so complex. Um, well, I have I have several like strands of how I could explain my approach to it so when I had his music for the first time in 2011 um, I was yeah I was just like as a dancer very struck by the rhythmicality and the textures so I started drawing his music Um, and so yeah so I came and then from the drawings I tried to translate the drawings again into movement and try to find the textures or rhythmicality in the movement that I would find from the drawings so this is a practice I kept going for the last 10 years so that was one column uh, of my research and then the second one was that in 2020 we had COVID so I had lots of time and um, the piece was also created in 2020 um, we were very lucky <laughs> to have made it um, but also it gave me the time to read a lot and I've read uh, 14 books about Ligeti and all his inspirations which I felt like it was quite um, I almost felt I had to do this just because he's so yeah his inspirations are so written in order to understand his music from a scientifical um, standpoint i felt like i really had to understand where he was coming from um so i had this information but let, then lastly um and that is something that i'm um i don't want to forget to say is also like what i call the choreographic ear and that by that i mean the uh the emotive the intuitive listening to to what how the music speaks to you because um i hear a lot of colors a lot of textures and they were also part of the creative process and so with the 18 études, um, I approached it really one by one because every single one of those études has its very own compositional concept. Um, and this was is also so interesting about Ligeti that he gave himself um a lot of restriction in the creation, which um probably makes it hard compositionally for him, but um yeah, the end result is just very rich because it's so concise. So I would say, like for every etude, I made a starting point. Um based on the compositional concept of the music but then also based on my own intuitive hearing like for example um, the first étude uh, is called désordre, désordre means uh, not ordered <laughs> so when you hear it for the first time like when I heard it for the first time I felt like oh it's throwing me out of the window it's so powerful Um, so when I then studied it it's actually a polyrhythm which is um, décalé I don't know what that is in English it's like a phrasing um, going away from each other and um, so then uh, I had this idea of with the dances of doing a polyrhythm to the polyrhythm so you hear a melody even though it's not ri- uh, written down so we would create a rhythm to that melody that you would hear which is not that rhythm of that melody um, but at the same time I had this image in my mind almost as if it's trees um in the wind which uh, whose leaves is like flattering like this so I had this and I saw like when you hear it yourself, I mean, for me, it's definitely like dark red. There is like a sense of passion. There is a sense of um, acceleration, climax, uh, ecstatic. Uh, it's ecstatic also. So all those feelings made its uh, its way. Plus also the idea of machines and smoke into the creation of the first etude. Um, and so, for example, with the sixth etude, which is the closing of the first book, it was um, written as a lamenting canon of fugue. Right. And um, so our starting point was completely different because um, basically the the inspiration for Ligeti was a political event in 1985 in in Poland where a lot of people died. So it has a lot of drama. Um, So that's why there's the lamentation. Um, So how we started uh, creating this was... um, I just gave the dancers a lot of images of lamenting um, sculptures so and I gave them the task to find lamenting gestures so we started from there Um, but now it gets a bit complex Um, (laughs) but then also um, because I'm very interested in texture so sometimes I would give give them the the task of like oh find some movements make some movements um Based on wooden textures or linear textures or like water. So mm-hmm. we had all those different textures. And so we made like rivers of those textures in a very intricate way in a canon form together, if that makes sense. Because the way I hear this etude is lots of rivers flowing into each other. So you see, it's like it's quite the, how the choreography developed is quite a complex. Um, way of accumulating his scientific ideas, his emotive ideas, and then mine.
0: (laughs) So it's, it's like you're not just, it's not just the music itself, but you're hearing other senses are being
1: evoked yeah. yeah yeah completely and maybe what's also interesting to know is that um, Ligeti was a sinisterist so um, I, I believe we all are in some ways or another and um, so this is someone who so for example he would write texts in German he he spoke a lot of languages but as he lived in Germany he would write texts in German of how he heard other people's music or even his own and the way he would write is for example I, I don't know anything by heart now but I just give you an example like oh this sounds Like mud, a golden mud becoming the sunshine, or something like this. So quite surrealistic, and um, I felt I could completely relate to how he would describe certain musics. Um, Yeah, and I just because I I draw music, I completely like I realized that I also hear his music uh, more like textures or colors or like in that kind of way, which was really inspirational to my choreography. So that's something I learned of myself through him.
0: And it's this idea that uh, he kind of restricted himself and gave himself boundaries, almost instinctively. You think, well, that doesn't allow for passion. That doesn't, you know, uh, it, it keeps it in. But what you're saying is, that absolutely, you can have both. You can still have the passion that comes out of yeah. um, a, a kind of strict structure. Maybe you never... Yeah.
1: Well, I feel uh, for me, this is Ligetis genius because I believe very good art like that's my complete personal opinion is um highly conceptual but also highly emotive and for me ligeti is that and also very accessible because i mean i believe ligeti is very accessible um for me it is emotive in a sense that you might not always be able to say oh this emotion is happiness uh, this attitude is happiness this attitude is sadness like for example, I did those kids workshops and some of the kids said, Oh, it's a bit angry, but also a bit happy. So it's like states in between or state even states even before an emotion as such is formed. Um if you want to speak about the emotive um component. Um so yeah, for me, uh yeah, it's very striking and very moving this music.
0: <laughs> and you mentioned uh dancers plural. So how many people are yeah. on stage?
1: Yeah, we have five dancers on stage.
0: And has it? You've toured this already. It's been around Europe. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So we um we had our like fake premiere in December two thousand twenty, where we had ten people in the audience, basically only the directors of the theater. But then we were lucky to have been invited to premiere it again with an audience in uh, July two thousand twenty one at the Grand Théâtre in Luxembourg. And then we toured to our co-producing partners in Germany, to Musik Festival Kunstfest Weimar. Um, and now, because we're celebrating uh, Ligeti's 100th birthday this year, we um toured uh, quite a bit through Germany, uh, south of France, we were at the festival of in Avignon in Austria, and now we're in Scotland, which I'm so happy about.
0: <laughs> I, I was interested in, does it change at all, or is it absolutely strict every night that this is how we do it? Is there any kind of improvisation or changes as it, as you, you go, as you tour?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say it's very strict because, you know, you have to know dancing to Ligeti with live music um, is quite something because, um, for example, like this piano music is some of the most difficult um, piano repertoires that exists on this world. And uh, for our pianist, he often says, like, oh, if I play one note wrong, I'm out of here. So um, I can't fake it, basically. And... So our our dancers feel that tension, there is that tension. And also like the way I created this choreography is that uh, when you come to see it, you will see it. Um, They're chained to each other energetically. No one is individual, like they're all in a net. One action has a consequence. Um, So this comes all from this idea of chaos theory, I believe. because we, we created it in, in COVID times, we we created it in times where our climate is going downhill, our nat- like the nature around us is dying. So I, I feel like this whole idea of that we are all um, interconnected, we all have a responsibility, just unconsciously is very much, or was very much, and is still very much part of my practice and very much part of my being, I believe. And um, uh, so you, you really see this interconnectivity of the dancers on stage and if one person does a mistake, they all have to uh, find a solution for it in the most minuscule moment. And at the beginning of the piece, there was a huge respect of the dancers and a, f- not a respect, a fear maybe a little bit to perform this piece because it takes um focus it takes a lot of inner strength and also a sense of togetherness with the music within the group of the dancers now i feel like people we've done it so many times like 20 times so i feel like even though the cast the cast change a bit um people feel more comfortable in it and get a little bit more full in it so i would say that is that has changed so within that super strict structure that has developed a sense of playfulness yes
0: (laughs) It sounds like i i can, i understand that idea certainly initially that uh, there's almost a tension to get it right when it's so exacting and that's almost part of the performance yeah,
1: absolutely i feel like this this performance lives off the tension yeah but every good performance does i feel because
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, i've spoken to quite a few jazz musicians recently and what they'll say is that almost it's different every night because they are improvising yeah. you know that's almost part of it to do some create something new although yeah. it's the same song or the same you know, piece of music uh yeah, yeah. and you said then, that you're gonna you're in scotland and you're going to be uh because yeah. uh, am i right to say you lived here for a while
1: yes i lived here in for one year and um, i was a guest artist at scottish dance theater about 10 years ago
0: so is this something i can see by your face you're really looking forward <laughs> to it yeah. You should, should let people know where they can, where they can see it.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, we are performing at the Bayer Theatre on the 17th of October, uh, so very soon. And this is our UK premiere. And right after, on the 21st of October, we are at the Dance Life Festival at the Music Hall in Aberdeen.
0: Oh, well, fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, aside from dance, what are the other theatrical aspects that people can expect?
1: <laughs> Um. So design plays an important role in in the piece. Um. I would say so. We we uh, we work with a set designer who created um a set which is also it's also inspired by Ligeti because Ligeti. You know when you hear the music, it's quite extreme. He tries to almost goes all the time. Like there's one quote by I think it was a critic. He he said, Oh Ligeti always tries to go over the uh the piano notes. You know he always goes above the space and beyond the space of the piano. So we um and this is so present in the music those extremes. So we really tried to create a set design that goes out into the space, um and of course also the costumes um were created with, with the music um in mind. We played with the idea of asymmetry, which is also um, which is present in the composition, but it's also present in the choreography itself. And also I because the idea of textures and colors is so important to me in my research. Uh, every dancer has different textures and different colours yeah because you know for example if you hear all the 18 etudes um, they have all a different colour and all a different texture so it's really like a big buffet of richness that you can experience I believe and hope there's something for everyone
0: and do you have theatrical inspirations do you have uh, either groups or performances you've seen that have really kind of inspired you yourself
1: Mm yeah for sure I mean I've had the privilege to see a lot during my lifetime and I've danced in a lot of pieces which um, I believe in one form or another have all informed my my practice Um, I feel like my dance language has you know I I trained um, a lot in classical dance but I'm I'm very interested in movement qualities as well and um, yeah there's very very much that inspired me it's quite hard for me to pick pick out like one show uh, because I feel like it's quite a multitude of things
0: and is, is it almost everything that you work on in some way you bring with you to the next project?
1: Yeah, I I would say so. I mean, it's all a big learning, I feel. um, For example, like now with Ligeti, I've worked very closely to the score um i've worked very i've been very inspired by this idea of action and consequence which comes from his music but i also believe it comes from me and um now currently i'm i'm working on another project i um, in the early stages of research where i combine a big um, big classic of uh, classical music Um, And I combine it with a new composition. And I'm very much part of even the music making and the thoughts about this. And it's actually inspired by plants and how they sound. So um, I continue on this idea of interconnectivity and the work on nature and uh, humans together. For example, this is also maybe something I can briefly talk about because in the piece, um, this is something I did very intuitively, but that I now understand. the dancers they never look at each other so i almost take the human component out of out of them nice. and i now see why i did that because um i feel like i often talked about it in the creation process like oh now you're like water or now you're a river or now you're um, i don't know what i said stones so for me like they were really phenomena of nature um and there's only one moment they look at each other which is then a very or uh, yeah human moment um so for me, almost the dancers um, became something non-human, but by that, I don't mean it in a bad way. Sure. It's just I wanted to open up new ideas of imagination and um, yeah, how to connect to our surrounding.
0: Yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. And how did you come to dance? Was it from an early age? What was your career?
1: Being? Yeah, I mean... I think- um- yeah, I was born in a village in, in in Western Germany, close to Luxembourg. And I just, uh, my mom always said, I just danced as soon as I could walk at home. Um, and um, so at some point, she just asked me, do you want to go to the ballet? Because like, that's what, yeah, what we had in our, in our um, city. Mm-hmm. Um, so creative dance was not something that was very, you know, very practiced uh, at that time. So I did lots of ballet and then, um, but I had from a very early age, the intuition that I have to go out into the world. I have to like uh, really go to a proper school because you have to start at a young age. So I begged my parents (laughs) to leave home and eventually they let me go. So I went to a ballet school and did my A-levels at the same time. And then um, I went to Lavan in, in London and did my BA there, which was a huge privilege and opened my eyes completely to the world of dance and to the world of art. Um, then did my MA at the place, which is a school uh, in London as well. And um, yeah, and then I started um, working as a dancer because for me, it was really important to work as a dancer before I started creating my own choreography, because um, I felt I wanted to understand, um, first of all, what is out there, because the world of contemporary dance is hugely eclectic nowadays. Um, there's so many different aesthetics, so there's really no right or wrong. And I really believe anyone can nowadays be a performer or a dancer. If they find the right people, and um, yeah, so I did that a lot. I work with visual artists, with theatre makers, but also like mm, smaller new cl- neoclassical companies, and was very interested. It was basically a research of how people direct and how people make take the best out of their performers. Um, but I always choreographed by the side or in secret, um, but I consciously held back and really going out into the world with my choreography from an early age, because I really wanted to research what my language was on about. And um, so before I did here is move, actually here is move is my first group work. And before that, I did a lot of solo work, which also toured to Scotland, um, have a big passion for touring in Scotland. Um yeah. And so the solo work and also the connection with the audience taught me a lot about my own language and my own vocabulary and what I was interested in. And so finally, I had the confidence um, to say, yeah, I think I'm ready to work with other people and uh, to translate my language. Um, yeah. And develop it with other people. And uh, that's when uh, we created Here yeah, is Move.
0: <laughs> and yeah, you you mentioned uh, a couple of times the kind of research that you do before. and It seems to me that that's that kind of inquisitiveness, as yeah. you mentioned with you that like kind of wanting to yeah. learn things is kind of central to what you do.
1: Yes, very much so. So I, for example, like when we're planning my next bigger premium for 2025, but I'm already very deeply in research because, you know, I feel a, a big responsibility of what you put out there in the world. Um, it, you know, it has a consequence what you put out there and it will be seen by people. I don't want to go as far to say it will influence people, but it will be shared and, Um, I really feel like I have a responsibility also to the taxpayers' money to really believe, like, think about, like, okay, what do we actually do? Why is it important? How do things connect? How do we um, give people access to that? How can we communicate in diverse forms what we do? Because I'm also quite interested in, for example, at the moment, we are also in St. Andrews or Aberdeen and giving lots of workshops to the community. Um, We are almost all, all of the time making a publication about our work to just Um, give maybe a more intellectual um, grounding to our work because a lot of people don't even know that dance has so many layers.
2: Um,
1: So I'm I'm quite passionate about thinking very deeply about this art form and how to um, bring it forward. So
0: it becomes as a project, each project is as rounded as possible with as many aspects as possible.
1: Yeah, I believe so. And also like my my projects are becoming much bigger and much more complex and multilayered and I have uh, more collaborators on board. So uh, you have to be ready for this. And also you have to be, um, yeah, you have to communicate, like you have to research with your collaborators the depth of it and um, share this and create and build something together from the ground. And this takes time if you do it with thought. Um Yeah, I mean, I can create quickly, like sometimes I have commissions and I do things quickly, but my own practice, which is those pieces, um, does take time.
0: Well, Elizabeth, you really want me to, it made me want to listen to the music of (laughs) Ligeti because it's not someone I know, it sounds amazing. And the the show as well, sounds as though it's going to be uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it.
1: Ah, thanks Alice, it was wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for asking me all those great questions.
0: I'm now joined by performer, artist and choreographer, Louise Al to talk about her new solo opera, Skunk Without Key." His Son. Hello, Louise. Hello. <laughs> well, I have to ask you before we get really into it, where does the title come from?
2: Um, the title is from, I, basically during the pandemic, I wrote a book of 610 riddles. Um, so that was my pandemic project, <laughs> and uh, they're kind of, some of them, most of them are really short, but there's like a huge amount of uh, riddles, basically, and they're like small poems, and yeah. one of the riddles ends with the line "Skunk without K is Sun," and I thought I quite liked it as a title for this work, because we kind of um, deal with language a lot and meaning-making, how do you create meaning through language? And uh, and it's also a little bit of a joke in a way, and it kind of speaks of um, sort of something existing in one form, and then if you remove something from it, in this instance, the K, uh, becomes a completely different thing. So I think my work deals a lot with uh, transformation, and uh, how things transform into another, and why, and uh, so yeah, uh, that's a long answer, but it's kind of, uh, that's the gist of it, yeah.
0: (laughs) A, a book of limericks, you're the first person I've spoken to who that was the lockdown for not limericks, uh, riddles. Um, yeah. yeah, you're the first person I've spoken to who's done that as the lockdown project. But uh, yeah. you've, you've kind of begun to answer my next question, which is how would you describe the show to our listeners?
2: It's, um, it's a three-act opera and uh i would also use the word experimental before opera sometimes i don't use that word depending on who i'm speaking to but i think this is for a kind of arts audience right so i can say it's an experimental uh non-traditional opera and uh it's the the text of the work the libretto is basically the audio description of the work so i've i worked uh For some years, with trying to integrate audio description for blind and visually impaired people um, into the work that I'm doing in different ways. So, previous works, I've kind of worked with uh, the audio description being a voiceover to the work describing everything. And I've also worked with a live describer as a performer in a work who describes everything as we're doing it. Um, And then I had this idea to use it as song material and I got into opera. I was working um uh well I got on the in the pandemic as well actually <laughs> on a bit of a fluke I, I got into this opera training program and right. I never really uh, I didn't know much about opera before. I think maybe I'd seen one or two operas in my life. And was very also like not very interested in opera and um, felt a bit like it was an art form that uh, I I don't know it wasn't for me yeah in a way and it kind of felt elitist and yeah um, all that so I uh, yeah but then there was this program which basically um, was run by. A number of European opera institutions um, and it's it was an 18 month kind of residency program for artists that have never worked with opera before to kind of learn about opera and yeah. um, so my background is more in dance and performance and uh, so yeah I applied and then I got in and and now i'm making an opera (laughs) for the first time um so it's 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 got a mix of um the opera i'm singing i'm basically singing the whole audio description of the show um and some of it is recorded as a chorus of voices so you kind of have um the ex yeah the experience is quite surround sound based so each recorded voice have their own speaker in the space that's kind of placed around and so you're surrounded by all these voices which is also my voice but then i i also sing live uh sometimes together with the chorus and sometimes um yeah separately from them me uh, <laughs> so uh yeah and i sing about i sing about everything that can be seen, really, in the space. So the first act is really about um, describing the space, the performance space itself, and describing the sets, and colors, and uh, describing me as a performer, what I'm wearing. Um, And then act two, sort of Yes, act one kind of sets the scene in a way for the performance to start. And then act two is, I feel it's kind of about human behavior and I'm, I'm singing, I call it an aria of verbs because I'm constantly singing a verb that I'm also trying to perform. So it starts with me singing the word crawling and then I kind of try and embody that word through crawling in different ways. Um and it continues to lots of other things. So that's like more of a physical uh performance that I'm also singing <laughs> at the same time. And uh yeah, so it, it's a it's a piece that I'm it sort of sings itself into being and the words manifests its existence really. Um, and it becomes quite meta in the end because the third act is starts referencing itself and the, the work so far and it, it kind of references back to different memories uh, from the show and um, yeah does that make sense
0: <laughs> it sounds incredible and, and so when you say it references to memories in the show references mm-hmm. to things which happened in the first and second act
2: yeah yeah exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah and yeah and sometimes it it veers into more other subjects that's not necessarily in the space um and it kind of references because it builds like quite a particular world i think in that, yeah. that performance space and but it also start referencing nature and the world that's outside of that and it also plays a bit with perspective of who's who is telling this narrative in a way because sometimes it comes from quite a a a perspective that's almost telling of a, a past that's happened and uh and how the human has behaved in these situations and um yeah, almost like a future voice that's telling uh of the past world where humans existed, but now somehow humans don't exist. <laughs> and uh yeah, so it's got a kind of yeah, that thing going on. Um
0: yeah. So it's almost different stages. The three acts are different stages to the the opera itself. And um it's interesting you say that because I Um, about maybe uh, eight years ago was asked to go and uh, I didn't know anything about opera it wasn't you know I like you I thought it's not for me there's an elitist aspect to it that's the way it felt and then I was asked to go and review uh, an opera that was based on a Scottish short story a Scottish writer short story and I loved it I absolutely loved it and it was really uh, experimental in the staging and you know it it was was as good a piece of theatre as I'd seen and now I'm really quite into it. and go yeah. to quite a lot, and love it. I love all aspects of it, and the different ways it's performed as well. And so, so what you want, did, you want to make this more accessible to people, opera more accessible?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's got a few access is something that I've thought a lot about um, with this work. Mm. So, the my main focus has really been on the audio description being accessible making it really accessible to blind and visually impaired audiences and and also to make to create audio description in a way that it's quite fun and playful and poetic and really like elevating it through this operatic form because usually if you use audio description and you come to the theater you put headphones on and it's quite it's quite fast delivered description right. actually. Mm-hmm. so it's and it can be quite um almost like sports commentary right and, uh, yeah so i really wanted to slow everything down through this operatic form and create it so that it's it is the work itself and um Yeah, and I think it, I think it works really well, but I also, but then there's, there's other layers of access. For instance, I was thinking a lot about uh, narrative and storytelling because that's such a strong component in operas and my work is really not like that at all. It's very abstract and, um, I don't necessarily tell a story that's linear, uh, and it doesn't have specific characters and, and such. Um, so I was thinking about how you can tell a story in, in alternative ways. And that's also how I started researching scent and how scent can be used in performance as well. Um, so with the work, I'm working together with a scent designer, uh, Clara Veal, who's based in Glasgow. And, and she's, she's in, incredible. Uh, and she's created these uh, three scents, so each act has its own oh. scent and um, and it, it really works with what you're seeing and hearing and the scent is sort of um, I don't know the right word for it, but it's, it's kind of got, helps to guide you through that, I think, and I think because the piece is very Evocative in different ways, uh, m- mostly through the poetic language. I think scent does a similar thing, and I think it also, um, yeah, hell, it 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 creates a certain narrative to have that quality in the air, also as an atmosphere. And I think that's really interesting how you can access performance in through different senses, really. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Because uh, it sound, sounds like an incredible sensory experience. So, you, because I guess scent, like a, a, other senses, will bring for each individual audience member something different. There might be memory, there might be um, a relationship, there might be all sorts of things. And then, so you've got um, sound and you've got a, a, scent, a smell. What does it look like on stage? How's it going to look to people? Is it just is it just yourself or there are there other performers?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a solo uh, piece, so it's just me. Yeah. Um, and the set is it's kind of it's tricky talking about the visuals because there's a lot of magic that happens right. in the piece. Uh, <laughs> so I'm kind of reluctant to Don't give
0: anything away you know absolutely yeah, yeah i
2: know but there, there has been some images of the work so i i can talk a bit about it it's uh the the set has been created by this uh incredible norwegian artist annette gillain and uh it's made out of these two curtains that are huge and they're hand painted um sort of abstract paintings and the curtains play quite a big role in the piece they're being revealed in different ways and they kind of become animated and uh yeah pe- perform in a way as well and i think the lighting does a similar thing where it feels quite alive in different ways so i have i feel yeah the performance space feels very alive it sort of it smells and breathes the light kind of breathes and the the set moves and and I'm moving and yeah, it's it's a beautiful space. And I think it's funny because I started thinking about beauty during making the work and I've never really (laughs) thought about beauty as, it's almost something that's a bit shunned, I think in contemporary performance, in that sector where you don't it almost feels like an old-fashioned traditional concept to focus on and uh, but i I've really been feeling like I want the work to be really beautiful. and uh, so we' we' made quite a lot of effort with the music and the 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 visuals to, yeah, and the scent also to to make it. Beautiful, So I hope it's going to be really visually pleasing and orally pleasing and sense- it's like a pleasing experience at the same time as it's quite challenging in some ways. It can be quite slow and because the description takes so much time sometimes to describe. So there's like a huge section where I just talk about the costume really in great detail. and and i think for blind audiences that's great you know and to have that that focus but i think for people um that are not blind it can probably feel quite maybe slow and yeah i'm not sure i think it's interesting and i think it's i think it's i i really like the theater also as a space that has the capacity to slow things down because i feel everything else in the world is really fast and there's yeah. a lot of information and so as as a maker, I'm very like, hmm. I'm just gonna turn everything down a bit and just kind of, uh, yeah, let people sink down a bit, yeah. Uh,
0: and it's true. I I think outside of opera, you probably rarely get three acts these days in theater. It's, it's quite a rare thing. So to say, um, how how long uh, is it uh, as a whole? How long are you um on stage for?
2: Well. Yeah, it's three acts, but it's actually, it's not that long of a piece if you compare with operas. So it's about, I think it's maybe 65 minutes long. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
0: So it almost sounds as if the audience, and the audience are, I suppose, always a, a part of a performance, but often it's there to kind of sit and be a passive part, but this sounds more interactive if they are doing work with, even if it's just with their senses.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's... um, I think also with the type of... um, the type of narrative that's not necessarily telling people what it is. People have have to do a bit of work to figure it out for themselves, which I really like, because I don't, I don't really like to tell people what, what it's about, or, um, because I don't even know fully what what it's about, Uh, I can talk about the things that's, you know, inspired it or, uh, references or things like that, but I think it's for an audience member, like a lot more interesting to go on your own
0: journey
2: and to also be allowed, um, to do that, because to me, I'm I'm always really happy when people tell me afterwards, oh, I, I thought it was about this or that, and people just create their own stories, really, which yeah. I hope, yeah, the work can allow them to go into that imaginary space. And
0: you mentioned uh, inspirations. What were the inspirations behind it? Was there pieces of theatre or other things that you'd worked on, perhaps?
2: well i think opera I, I saw a lot of opera in um in uh, when i did the opera program and um i mean nothing that i was like really loved but i just love the form of it i just think it's so interesting with this really expressive vocals that are so extreme yeah. and dramatic and yeah I love the the drama of it and uh, I think yeah and music as well and it's something but I'm always really interested in the format of things and how to take that format and almost yeah deconstruct it and then make it into my own so (laughs) the the piece that we made is very um it has the format of an opera. It's got the three acts. Yeah. It's got music. It's we worked with different structures, like you know, here's an aria, here's the overture, here's the uh, these things. And I, but they they're just. They, I I'm not sure. I I'm wondering if someone who really loves traditional opera would even call it an opera,
1: right. because
2: it might be so far removed from. From what that is, um, but it but it has the kind of the type of singing. I started taking singing lessons like in the past two years for the first time in my life. So uh, and that was a bit funny. Um, mm. My because my singing teacher is an opera singer, and she's like, "You want to sing opera?" And you've never really been singing before. And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> so um, yeah, so that's been really fun. But now I can't remember the question.
0: It was just about the inspirations. uh,
2: Yeah, Yeah. and I guess when I've been watching a lot of opera, I've been just been thinking about accessibility a lot and how it feels very um, not accessible on many different layers, really, like financially, it's so extremely um, expensive to go and see a piece and um, Yeah, and the the scale of it, which makes it really difficult to talk. I don't know, there's a lot of challenges with it and a lot of hierarchies and uh, within the making process. And um, yeah, and the audio description. I had never really heard of an audio described opera before, which I was like, "Hmm," because it's quite I think there's a bit of a thing going on in contemporary performance with trying to integrate yeah. audio description and but i'd never really heard of that in opera and it just seems like they don't really from conversations that i've been having during that time like people don't really think about access so much Um, so i thought that's interesting to to challenge that in a way and um Yeah. Now I've lost my plot again.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it is interesting. And I know um, I worked briefly for access services for television, doing subtitles (laughs) and they did audio description and the company did, uh, you know, signing as well and all of those things. And I've got friends who do just that. They work for theatre companies now, and actually one of them did work for Scottish Opera, I'm not sure they still do, but it was almost a subtitled or signed rather than audio described. Now, I'm sure there were audio described performances, but in theatre in general, people are moving. They're not yet there yet, but moving in the right direction for to make it more accessible. But what's really interesting for you that you've incorporated that into the piece itself, that mm-hmm. that is the as you say the libretto is the is is the audio description did you write it did you have you written your own libretto
2: yeah so i've written it together with uh, joe hellier who's another artist that i'm working together with and um and then we've also got um we've been working with a consultancy company um for yeah, from, from the start of making the work, really, where um they're blind access consultants and so they've been, we've been giving them pieces of um, text or maybe some filmed material and sometimes they've come to the studio and uh, I perform some things and they've given us a lot of feedback and that we then go away and rewrite things and yeah we actually got tomorrow we got our final consultancy session and then that's it because on thursday friday saturday this week we're recording the final uh version of the chorus so from when that's done then no more changes can be made basically in in anything like the choreography or the set the lights or anything because everything is described so it's got this knock-on effect and uh it, it's been quite a challenging and extremely time-consuming process to make it work, because you kind of, in order to test material, you have to first first make some choreography, then describe it, then that gets composed by the composer into music, and then I have to learn it and sing it, record it, and then we can test it and get feedback on it. So there's been this constant back and forth and um, changing things and rewriting and yeah.
0: So it's, so, it's yeah. almost like a, a full circle, you have to create the choreography that then has to be described, but then at the end the choreography has to fit the description. Yeah. Started from, from, from that, That's amazing. Yeah,
2: yeah I feel it has to be quite exact.
0: Like... Sorry, on you go.
2: And then I feel I feel sometimes I've just created a nightmare <laughs> because it's it's just usually when I make performances, I would make changes up until the very last minute, like even before the performance or even during the performance. Yeah. I'm like, skip that. I'm going to do this thing instead. And uh, but with this, you just can't because it has to completely match the description. And the third act is actually the worst because uh or or best depending on how you see it but it kind of, it's it starts referencing back because it starts referencing back to the work itself my choreography is also based on i sort of do a baroque rendition of the previous act so like mm-hmm. a baroque dance style um and So that also needs to, if I change anything in the choreography for act three, then the choreography of act two also needs to change and the description of act two. So it's just, it's like constantly knocks other bits out. And yeah, it's quite complex, but I think when it's finished, I think it's just gonna work so, so well. And I think it's gonna be really exciting that everything is just so, connected and there's something really um satisfying and beautiful about that
0: but it does sound as though as a performer that your concentration will have to be absolute
2: yes yeah i'm i'm kind of that i with performing the piece soon i'm i'm not worried about the piece at all i feel like the the content and the visuals and the sound and scent everything is is amazing and I'm really excited and I have 100% confidence in that, but I, I'm still kind of learning the piece and it's a lot to um, remember like text and how to sing certain things and also I'm moving at the same time and also I need to match together with the description and be in time and uh, yeah, there's a lot of things to kind of hold as a performer. So it's it's gonna be the... the performance challenge of my life i feel it's kind of uh it's coming up
0: <laughs> well at least you know you're not you're you're challenging yourself it's your own challenge that you're doing it
2: yeah which sometimes <laughs> like why,
0: why why
2: am i doing this <laughs> but uh yeah no it, it, it'll it be good it'll be good
0: <laughs> I, and, and talking of a challenge i hadn't thought about that until you mentioned it but you're doing this uh, uh training that you were doing in uh, opera which of course includes singing and you hadn't sung opera before that's quite a challenge in itself isn't it a huge challenge to to learn yeah. to sing in that particular way
2: yeah yeah it's um yeah it's very difficult i don't i don't even think i'm a very good singer in general and opera i mean it's <laughs> it's uh, uh no, I'm not going to be down on myself. I I think I I'm doing as good a job as I can. But I think if an opera singer came, they would probably not be so satisfied with my singing. But uh, but it's like it's my version of yeah, opera also. absolutely. I think that's interesting, and it's kind of if I think about singers that I like, I rarely, I I'm rarely interested in singers that have a very uh you know perf perfect kind of voice that's like yeah. very um i don't know v- virtue, v- what's the word virtuistic
0: virtuoso. yeah yeah virtuoso
2: virtuoso yeah i'm more interested in voices that are going into weird places and yeah um, that's what i'm doing so
0: <laughs> but i think it goes to this idea again of access i think some people Think well. Um, to be involved in opera, you've got to be highly trained. You've got to be, you know, um, uh, be been doing it since you were like two years old or something. Not quite. That's a bit young, but you know what I mean. From a very young age, and and again, so it says. Well, look, this it can be for everybody, which I think is a great thing to say because I agree with you. I think that opera is such an interesting form of theatre, and it should be for for everybody in that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah,
2: I'm hoping that. Um... I'm hoping that a lot of people will come to the show that have never seen an opera before will become interested in opera and I think it's it's great also that it's it's an opera piece that's being performed in the context of and um, this festival take me somewhere and which is more of a contemporary performance festival um so yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see what what kind of audience we get and yeah maybe it's like the little first window into opera and that would be really exciting yeah
0: and we've spoken about the space without mentioning where people can actually see it how can people uh come and see the show
2: uh it's on on the 20th and 21st of October um at tramway in Glasgow um and yeah it's part of take me somewhere festival so there's loads of work on for i think over three weeks um and the the second show so the show on the 21st is also bsl interpreted right? And so if you're using bsl then we'll have an interpreter for that show so that would be good and uh yeah, there's loads of work going on at the same time. And I think on the Saturday, the 21st, is also all the work on that day, I believe is audio described as well. Right. So there is a push of trying to get more of um blind and visually impaired people to come to the festival as well. Um, yeah, but that's it really.
0: <laughs> that sounds fantastic. And, and I have to say, Uh, skunk without k son also sounds I mean I'm so pleased to have talked to you about it because I I'd read the the press release and I was thinking how is this going to work but you've explained exactly how it'll work which is fascinating Louise thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and all the very best on the show
2: thank you